Hey, welcome to Future Builders podcast number two. Uh, we're super excited to, uh, to do this again. Last week we talked a lot about kind of the basics of what Future Builders is all about and uh, things like um, a little bit about coding, a little bit about education, learning and some of our thoughts. And we kind of waffled on for a little while, so we're going to do a bit more of that waffling on. Um, so yeah, I'm Spencer from Future Builders, joined again by Jordan. Hi. And uh, I think today we're going to talk a bit more about education mm. and um, maybe some of the problems in education as we see it. Yeah. Uh, and talk about kind of where we position ourselves in kind of the learning world as mm. well, I think. So mm-hmm. why don't we kick off with brief discussion, brief discussion <laughs> about um, about some of the problems in, in education as we see it currently. Absolutely. Um, so I guess I can start with having been a teacher in formal education for eight years. I was a secondary teacher and in college and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And um, it was only really when I did a, a master's that I learned of all of the faults of the current formal education system and kind of realized that actually what we're doing is setting people up for not setting people up for the, the future world mm-hmm. and being able to be really good active participants in this in this kind of emerging world that we, we, we kind of are moving towards now. Mm. And, um, and so I, I stopped teaching in formal education and carried on and, and focus more on on learning and enabling people to learn as opposed to education per se. So it's interesting because if the if if your these theories are known, then why is it so difficult for school for the school system to implement these theories? I think it's systemic. Okay. So the education system really for me has been has been built on a factory model. Mm. So um, I remember seeing the amazing TED talk, I think it was, probably still is, one of the most seen TED talks Mm. by Sir Ken Robinson. Mm -hmm. uh, And it was talking about the new education paradigm. Mm -hmm. And this whole idea that the factory system of education, which which starts at your kind of made by date, like when you Mm -hmm. were born and everything is categorized around your year of manufacture, if you (laughs) like, right? And we kind of go through this, this factory system of this conveyor belt uh, and just basically giving people knowledge, like mm-hmm. forcing people to acquire knowledge that they then have to memorize in order to test and assess people's ability to regurgitate those kind of facts. And particularly in today's world, like memorization is, is not what's needed. And we yeah. talked a bit about this last week and we, we talked about this a huge amount actually about memorization is not, is not important because you can Google anything you've got all of the world's knowledge in your phones. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's much more about how you apply that learning, how you can differentiate truth from fiction, mm-hmm. how you can determine what is trustworthy and how you can develop yourself as an individual as opposed to being kind of forced. So I think it's I think that, that question of why, mm-hmm. why aren't we doing it is because it's been built in this factory system mm-hmm. and it's really hard, like bloody hard to change that system mm-hmm. to this kind of new world where we're, we're moving away from needing to produce um, homogenous people mm. that do the same thing over and over again and actually we need people that are um, far more adaptable. Mm. I think it's a really difficult thing to change even though we know it it's really hard to change in the formal system. Yeah super interesting and w- one thing that um, I was thinking about as well is that I, I wonder if the, the the design of our education system was or the, the designs were created at a time when information was not readily available it was very difficult for people to access and so in a sense there were a set of basic truths 
that we did need the grown-ups to give to the children so that they could understand the fundamental makeup of our society like we've got to teach them the basic history of their country and the basic geography of their local region and and without it the the young people wouldn't have access to this sort of knowledge whereas now we have this insanely interconnected world where you can find out the capital city of any country in the world within three seconds of just asking Google. And you can find out all about the Tudors by going onto Wikipedia. You don't need to memorize which of the Tudors we think are great and which of the Tudors we think aren't so great because you can find out on Wikipedia any moment. So in a sense, it's like there was this information availability problem in the past and and that was what the whole educational system was built to try and redress Mm. whereas now that we have information freely available to everyone really with a phone connection which is basically everyone on the planet so then it's a paradigm shift that we need to go through when actually that that information being passed from a knower to an unknowing person is not the paradigm that we need anymore it's more about empowering people with these fundamental skills that allow them to make sense of what is now too much information that we've gone from this huge lack to an overabundance of information and so the tools we need is not about remembering scarce information it's about sifting through this onslaught of information and working out what's good what's bad what's valuable what's not so valuable yeah and I think that's I think that's understood in the education mm. community that mm-hmm. like these are important things. I think the difficult is the difficulty in changing things is, is this is a this is a system that's evolved maybe evolved a little bit evolved perhaps <laughs> uh, over the last hundred couple of hundred years at the most yeah. and but it's a system which is so ingrained in our uh, in our society mm-hmm. um, that it's a really difficult thing and really hard thing to move. So if, if, if for example in order to prove whether someone has an understanding, some, whether someone's learned something and whether they can, um, we need to assess them. Mm. Um, now, the assessment that we have, certainly in the UK, is like GCSEs and, and A-levels, in, you know, in, in, every, in every kind of certainly developed world, they have their formal systems of assessing people. And, mm. and it's very hard to assess people on how adaptable they are or how well they interpret different sources of, of information and truth and come up with their own conclusions. Mm. Um, it's very difficult to do that. It's much easier to say whether something is right or wrong mm. uh, and therefore test people in, a, in, a, in a, the systems that we understand. Like, mm-hmm. you know, have they given me the actual answer that I'm looking for as opposed to have they given me like an interesting answer that, mm. that is challenging some conventions and actually shows that they have a deeper level of understanding. Yeah, and I, I wonder if there's a, a problem of scale as well, yeah. in that a lot of the, what what seem to be improvements on the system really don't scale very well. So mm-hmm. one thing that I, I don't think we've discussed before, and but I've heard from a lot of people, is that the, the VIVA model that is used in PhDs is um, a more appropriate way of assessing people according to this new paradigm, because in a sense it's like you get to express yourself and then you get assessed by a panel of your peers and that they their experience is trusted so that there isn't a defined right and wrong answer it's that they as a group assess if you're at the level of understanding where you are contributive to that community rather than consumptive I guess and that that if we just couldn't have a Viva model for example for every 16 year old to replace GCSEs because you just don't have the availability of people to do that sort of assessment yeah I think there's definitely a scale factor and I think there's I think that's a really interesting problem to try to to try to solve and actually Mm. that idea of what assessment 
is mm. when you go right back to actually its initial intended meaning and where it's kind of derived from it actually means to sit next to and have a, a conversation about a certain thing as mm. opposed to prove whether one thing that someone's written is right or wrong mm. it's actually much more in the gray area it's much more qualitative as opposed to quantitative mm. and that's where the scale question really it gets difficult mm. i think i think you're right having having those sit down conversations having panels where you're able to defend your point of view mm-hmm. whether that be right or wrong in, in other people's opinions mm-hmm. actually is is valid and and um and it's getting across that validity of your argument which happens really well but i think the scale question is a really cha- really challenging one so i wonder i'm freestyling here a little cool. bit so forgive me but i wonder if there's something in um like uh, natural language processing and and machine learning that could potentially act as that assessment layer in a, whether there could be a future, for example, where rather than asking people to um, write an essay about a certain subject, they can actually have a what feels like a, a living conversation, but actually it would be a machine that they were conversing with, and and their very responses would then be recorded and would be processed and would be analysed, and and in a sense, it there, it wouldn't need to be a rightness or wrongness. It would more like be a sense that this person has achieved fluency in this topic to a level where we can put a stamp on them and say you can count that they understand this topic yeah and i think there's a bunch of people that are trying to kind of solve that okay, with cool. with ai and mm. and and definitely some big inroads are being made into that um uh i think one of the interesting players in this world is like a company called newton mm. with a k mm. and they're using kind of natural language processing um they're using a lot of machine learning algorithms to try to do formative assessment as well as summative as well mm. so you know when you're doing a math math challenge if you hit the same problem then they'll kind of guide you towards the next bit of learning in order to overcome that barrier mm. uh, so it's, I think that idea of formative assessment can be done really like really nicely mm. um, with that as well it's a really big challenge again Super and then big again challenge. one of the issues here is like how do you program the machine to be like to be truthful like mm-hmm. and someone's still got to got to kind of make that decision about what is right or what is wrong or how yeah. you can assess and like that, that then you come into like the whole ethics questions with with ai and things yeah. yeah and so i'm interested to get your thoughts on the montessori model and and if that is the future if that's a sort of a, a branch that is interesting but might not have all the solutions do you have any opinions on the montessori model yeah i think it's fascinating and and you know i've got kids and actually went through that process of deciding whether or not to, to kind of go down a montessori route mm. and I think it's I think the the fundamentals of like free play mm. and exploration and self-discovery that kind of really uh, really focused and really at the core of kind of Montessori um, theory are super valuable so so mm. valuable things such valuable things and I think you know quite often we over we over uh, constrain our kids mm. we kind of coddle them over coddle them sometimes mm. and we try to force them into a specific path i think there's a really nice analogy that that um a guy called a professor of mine uh, called stephen heppel talked through once which is where where his uh three-year-old granddaughter was on a balance bike mm-hmm. and just got this balance bike for her for her birthday went down this hill like super speed just like jumped on it and just went and mm-hmm. like and then the very year, the year after when for her fourth birthday um got bought a bike with pedals, a normal mm-hmm. bike, no stabilizers, jumped on and just pedaled and went. Like wow. never needed the scaffold, if you like, of Brilliant. the pedals. Yeah. And that's like, why are we constantly holding back kids 
on their from their bike mm. on, on their bike or through their learning mm. when all they want to do is go and they've mm. got this love of learning this desire and this curiosity built being built in and what we often do with definitely with some school systems is constrain that and stop that free-flowing creativity and mm. i think one story is trying to tackle that mm. by giving that freedom of expression and freedom of play it's a really interesting thing and I think mm. I think it doesn't just have to be in primary school I think we mm. we've kind of lost as adults that ability to play freely yeah um, we game a lot mm-hmm. right but actually there's a big difference between gaming and, and play play mm. is much more about intrinsic motivation and mm-hmm. a drive for the love of doing it mm. as opposed to being incentivized because of winning tokens you know whatever it is or, or money or qualifications mm. you know freedom of play is a really interesting thing as opposed to gaming it yeah, and it, it makes me think of that sort of dichotomy between finite and infinite games as well. That like there's a lot of the the games that we offer to people are games that you are winner or loser right. depending on how well you perform. And and the the model I have of, of education is that it's not something that you're supposed to have a defined start and a defined end, and then a defined metric of how you performed by the time you get to that end it's this it's an infinite game where there there is no end goal to it it's it's valuable in and of itself and so the doing is what explains it it doesn't have to be justified by some external goal or external act yeah and i think that's a big difference between a few things so mm. the difference for me between education and learning mm. that education is something which is done to you mm. right you're almost passive mm-hmm. and you're not free to opt in or out particularly mm. in the formal education world whereas learning is something you opt into you make a choice an active choice to learn okay. and again like i learned I started to actually learn for myself, I think, when I was 28. Yeah. And ironically, I've been a teacher for three years at this stage. <laughs> I didn't know how to learn. I didn't know how people learn. And I definitely couldn't learn myself. Yeah. Not properly. Yeah. And I kind of, I was forced into this situation where I had to learn for myself. And I, got, I kind of got this absolute love of learning. Mm-hmm. And like, I think it's fascinating that kids will jump out of bed at four o'clock in the morning, five o'clock in the morning to want to go to Disney World or something like that, or like the park or all these kind of things because they're so excited about it. Mm. But yet for me, the most exciting thing is learning something new, Mm. right? And how is it that kids aren't jumping out of bed at four or five o'clock in the morning to want to go and learn? And it's Mm. because we we create this artificial construct of education and Mm. and it's education as opposed to them learning. And I think that's a real Mm. real issue, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and instinctively, I I try and think back, because I've, I've never been a teacher formally, but I can think of myself. And, like, I know that when I was being taught things in an abstract sense, it it was I had to sort of justify to myself why it was worth knowing at all. And so I think I was quite resistant to some of the stuff that teachers were trying to tell me, because it's that classic, when am I going to need this in life, <laughs> sir, sort of thing. Right? <laughs> Whereas I sort of flipped that on its head. And one thing that... I'd that, have hated you. But. Yeah, oh God, yeah. All <laughs> my teachers teacher. did. All my teachers did. <laughs> because you just will. Yeah, but I was I was voracious in my quest for information. But it, yeah. was, it very much it had to be useful information in some way. It had to be like important and not abstract. So. Yeah. Give you a simple example. So when I was really young, and I mean like must have been seven, eight, nine years old or something, I used to just get old computers and old hi-fis and old radios and just take them apart. And I had no idea what I was doing. And I was just drawn to the beauty and the complexity of these machines. And I was so overawed that so much stuff could happen in something. And I I just wanted to pick it apart. Mm. And 
I didn't at that time, but if I'd had someone who was able to explain to me, like, this is the processor, this is the RAM, this is the, this is whatever, this is the graphics card, yeah. and this is how they interact, then scaffolding that information on top of what I was already engaged in and already trying to explore would have been by far the most effective way to communicate that information to me. Yeah, I, I, and I was so similar. Mm. So I used to take, do exactly the same thing, take things apart mm -hmm. constantly. I remember my dad had this old, I don't even know what it was, like internet machine where yeah. you put the phone onto this thing. And yeah. I was constantly trying to get this thing to work and nice. I was just like hacking away at it. Um, I've got it to make a few sounds like cool. once, I think, but that's yeah. how I got to. Yeah. And like, again, building build, building PC in my kind of teenage years, whatever mm. it was. Um, and that was like that exploration and tinkering. And, and I think, you know, maybe we've lost a bit of that. I think there yeah. are... There's a load of organizations that are trying to kind of bring that back, Raspberry Pi, yeah. BBC Microbit, and these kind of things to get yeah. that kind of tinkering world back in. Mm -hmm. But actually, that's something that you did, f like driven from an internal curiosity as opposed yeah. to, again, the formal education would have hated that. They would have hated that exploration and right. taking things apart. And the funny irony is that I then actually did an electronics GCSE and I was very not engaged with it because I didn't feel like it was empowering me to build stuff. I felt like it was telling me that there were certain formulas I had to just memorize and there were certain like truth tables that I just had to study and, and stick stick them in my head somehow. Yeah. And I wasn't, you know, I wasn't being shown a logic gate so that I could build a simple computer. Right. I was being told just memorize this as a logic gate, just memorize its truth table. Yeah. And that somehow disassociated me from it and like I didn't feel like it was any like I, I don't know it's like mm. that the, when it was taught in an abstract sense and not in a sense so that I can build something interesting or do something interesting yeah it sort of separated me from it in a sense yeah no I totally agree and I, I think the same about my when I was at university mm -hmm. and I learned some basic coding at university I was programming in C++, getting mm. these robots to move around and mm -hmm. embedded microprocessor systems like downloading code onto a microchip and getting this this um, machine to be like an automated machine. Like, yeah. And like looking back, I was like, that was so cool, like mm -hmm. so advanced. But I was like 18, 19, 20 at the time and could not appreciate the value of what I was doing. I had mm. no idea. And the point mm. here, I think, is that it just seems so weird that at a point when at the point that we go to university mostly, mm. like 18, 19 years old, we're not aware of the wider world. We mm. cannot relate some of these lessons that we are being taught and lessons that we could be learning to what, how we can apply them. And I think mm. that's failing both on the education system, but I think there's also, there's something really interesting about that like lifelong learner thing that you were just talking about. Mm. But why is it that we, you know, if, we, if, if, our, if our working lives now are gonna go on to 67 mm. pension age, mm -hmm. maybe 70 in the next few years, by the time we're gonna retire, maybe it's at 80, yeah. let's be honest. Yeah. Which actually means we're about a third of the way through our work life. Yeah. And our education was done in the first four years of, yeah. of that, if you like. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of this time, which is you know 60 years of work, mm -hmm. completely unrelated and a completely different world to what we, we did our formal, formal training with. Mm. And I think that's just such a strange concept and a concept I think we need to break apart we need to pull mm -hmm. apart and like mm -hmm. there's a lot of people talking about this kind of infinite learner thing there's a load of people talking about lifelong learning but actually for me it comes down to like motivation mm. and getting that intrinsic drive to be to be a better person to want to change your life to change your impact mm. to change the world around you to see that there's something bigger mm. than just you and I think that takes some that takes I guess um Maturity, mm. age, like real world experience. Do you think it's something that can be taught? 
Or do you think it's something that you just, it, it comes out of you eventually, if you're lucky? I think it's something that could be learnt. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether it could be taught in the traditional sense of teaching. Interesting, yeah. yeah. So I think it's something that you have to experience. Mm. You have to like go through points of failure and, and struggle and hardship and pain mm -hmm. in order to, to kind of come out the other side, I mm. think. Mm. Um, you know, I mean... Ironically, we're we're creating an education company, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> and in the technology world, both to as a tech platform, but also enabling people to build technologies as well. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of these two worlds. And ironically, like I don't believe in courses mm -hmm. as the as the primary way to learn, mm -hmm. um, because I think they're artificial, and because they're being, it's still in this art, old world view of the of the way that we learn of, mm -hmm. of education. Um, that's not to say that courses are bad. I think courses plus a lot of other stuff is is, is a good thing, is a good mm -hmm. model. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, I learn more from reading books and listening to podcasts and reading blogs and talking to people mm -hmm. than I do in courses. And I kind of get bored by most of the courses that I sign up to. The mm -hmm. amount of courses that I've signed up to online mm -hmm. using various techniques platforms and edtech people <laughs> like and never done never got past the first couple of percent yeah of that course yeah it's, it's huge yeah. and maybe it's that i'm taking what i need from it mm -hmm. but equally it's that they're done they're not applied and i think so therefore i think i think it can be learned but i don't think it's an easy thing to teach you can probably coach people through their own self yeah development, I yeah okay yeah. i don't know what you're interesting thoughts. well I, I it's i think it's one of the hardest most opaque problems out there it's like it it seems at least to be a very binary thing there are people who understand that learning for its own sake is value creating and so they just naturally want to consume information and consume knowledge and then there's others uh, it's almost the other half of the binary that just seem to say well I have all the information I need right now. What use is there me spending an hour a day a week of my of my valuable time learning this new thing unless there's a very clear reason to or outcome for it? Yeah. And I, like one of the things that I sort of struggle a little bit with is that a lot of the learning, well that's not fair. A lot of the things that seem to be worth learning nowadays are complex. The the obvious stuff is already in the education system, right? So I think of a simple example, my best friend at the moment, he's trying to learn um, some stuff around audio engineering. And I'm sort of doing it with him a little bit just because I'm intellectually curious and I, I find it fascinating. But then it sort of comes back to me and is like, well, I realized that my algebra is not good enough. So in order to carry on, I've got to go back to algebra to understand that. And then there's, it goes a bit further along and realize that actually there's differential equations, which is a whole other level of complexity that he needs to learn. Right. And then there's electronics that he needs to learn as well. And it seems that most of the, most of the interesting topics nowadays are very broad and they, they, they synthesize lots of different uh, areas of knowledge and part of the struggle is is that like let's just stick with that exact example that there is maths is such a deep topic that there's it's very easy to see that one of those courses and be like 
I'm never going to get this. I don't have a year to brush up on my maths in order to carry on with this course. I just want to get this integral understanding. So an area that I'm interested in is is how to get like a minimum viable knowledge because of each individual topic so that you can have this integral level understanding of the broader topic. So another one that we were just talking about earlier on with a with a potential client of ours is around data. And you go on to one of the online courses and you think, well, I want to get better at understanding and communicating using data. Mm-hmm. You go on to one of the tech platforms and it says, well, do an introduction into R or do an introduction into Python. It's like, well, yes, but you don't need to spend weeks learning Python in order to start because what you want to learn is data and data right. analysis and right. Python is part of it but it's not all of it and and also Python is much more than just a simple tool for use for doing data analysis yeah. and so it's very hard for people to get the right amount of information to build these integral understandings and so I wonder whether people are often left dissatisfied or dis- disappointed because it, it seems on the surface that you've got to learn all these different topics in this really in-depth way in order to get a simple understanding of a complex topic. And and I guess that if we can find more efficient ways for people to understand these complex topics, then it might lead to more interest and more excitement around learning them in the first place. I mean, coding is another great example, right? That yeah. I, I get people coming to me and they're like, I've spent a year trying to teach myself to code and I just can't get anywhere. I'm just stuck and I'm basically feeling like I'm going to give up. And, and as everyone who's probably listening and who's ever known me has heard a thousand times before it's like because they're building their their intellectual houses on shaky conceptual foundations you know and I wonder if we can fix that then a lot of the other stuff becomes a lot easier that if, if you teach people to be independent thinkers then motivation just emerges right but and i for me i often think people not being motivated to learn is not because they're actually not motivated to learn it's it's a symptom of a deeper cause which is around fear and inadequacy and vulnerability and so for example i will say to you i don't want to learn chinese and if a genie came down and said do you want free knowledge of how to speak Chinese? I'd be like, of course I want yeah. to speak Chinese. But I'm afraid of admitting that I'm maybe not smart enough to actually learn that. So I'll say, no, I don't want to learn that because that yeah. gives me the power rather than giving away the power and saying, I'd love to speak Chinese. I just don't know where to start and I don't think I can. Yeah, interesting. I think there's a load of things uh, that are firing off in my mm-hmm. mind around this. So um, I think you're right. And I think that that idea of fear, if mm-hmm. I pull into that real quickly, uh, for me particularly when I was going through Mm A-levels, so 17, 18 years old, I I completely messed up my A-levels. I was like, I got Ds and Es Mm -hmm. pretty much across the board. Mm -hmm. Um, And part of the reason I think for that now, looking back, was that I was so fearful of failure Mm. if I tried, Mm. that therefore I didn't try, and then I got the excuse of saying, well, I didn't try, of course I'm like, it's fine. Fascinating from a psychological perspective. I see that all over the place. It's like, if I don't try, then I can tell people that's the reason, and and it's a power thing. It's like, I still, it was like, I actively was the reason I did it, and not because I can't be good enough, or I can't be the person I want to be to get good at this. Yeah, 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 fascinating. I, I think... I'm sure that that's 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 the case, and like, mm. and and actually, that was really it was a really fortuitous thing. Like, mm. why the you know I look back and I go, thank goodness I failed my A levels, mm. because what I ended up doing was, in fact, I'll go back a few steps further. Mm-hmm. We were just talking about this a few minutes ago. Like, my careers advice came from my nan, right? Brilliant. Um, and this is this is crazy, but it's totally true. And I think actually this is probably not that uncommon. Yeah, maybe not people's nans, but like this is kind of what you do. Is mm. I was good at Lego and I was good at breaking things and putting things back together to. 
certain degree, maybe not to work, but like always tinkering this stuff and always building Lego. Yeah. And my nan basically said quite a few times, you're my little engineer. Yeah. And like we didn't have another engineer in the family and whatever. And she was like really kind of excited that I was going to be an engineer. And, yeah. and therefore I chose my GCSEs and my A-levels based on that conversation from mm. my nan nothing else mm. right my nan saying i was going to be an engineer so i did maths and physics at a level all these things i was okay at it you know and like didn't try very hard so i didn't do very well mm -hmm. but the reason reason why failing my a levels was fortuitous is that i went to do a foundation in engineering because i was still firm that that was the thing that i was supposed to be doing mm. it was only doing the, that course which was supposed to bring my maths and physics up to the level of everyone else before uh, doing my bachelor's mm -hmm. um, that I realized there's this other world right and I ended up doing still an engineering course but mixing it with music and it was music systems engineering and it mm -hmm. was electronic and electrical engineering computer systems engineering but all with a focus on audio systems and music mm -hmm. so I built analog synthesizers I did a load of recording in studios nice. understood like architectural acoustics and all that kind cool. of thing so there's still a lot of that maths and like engineering brain mm -hmm. but it was also coupled and this is why I think it was such a blessing is that it was coupled with this creative world as well of music mm. and it's a passion of mine I kind of played in bands and those kind of things so actually to bring those two usually completely separated domains of engineering and and, and art mm. or like science and art together mm -hmm. to f into into something that actually gels was an incredible thing and I know we talk quite a lot about that that like science and art world and mm. Um, yeah, so like, that's a, kind of an interesting perspective, an interesting transition maybe into that kind of conversation about science and, and, and creativity. Yeah, it's an interesting one. And, and I think that that dichotomy is actually part of the problem. Right. And that there is this, this received wisdom that we sort of have these two independently existing worlds. There's like the, the technical, the scientific, the stuff that we can measure. And then there's the emotional and the artistic and the creative that's somehow ephemeral. And and my I, I didn't do anything as awesome as, as music and engineering in my degree. I, philosophy was my degree, so you have to forgive me an indulgence for a second. But I, I actually think it roots back to effectively one of the founding fathers of, of our entire worldview, and that's Rene Descartes. And and Descartes was is arguably the founding father of Western mindsets. And he's wrong, like he's wrong, and he's always been wrong. And, and ironically, there was another philosopher that was around at pretty much the same time called Benedict Spinoza, who had exactly the right conception of reality. Um, but sadly, Descartes got all the attention and, and everything was built around that mindset. And so people tend to think that science is this sort of objective truth with a capital T that we can hold on to. And they want to really cling to this idea that there is such a thing as truth and science can prove it to be true. It's like the, but science is just the art of objectivity. Right? Right. It's like right, we, right, right. we all, all we have is perspectives, but we have these symbolic systems like maths that allow us to have shared understandings of, of truth. Whereas when it comes to the artistic and the emotional and the creative, there is there is no like yardstick for value there's no mm. objective measure of quality or beauty and all these sorts of things so in the eye of the older, right? right and it's and it comes subject. back to this take i think therefore i am it's yeah. like i know that there is creativity i know that there is consciousness but that's the end of that conversation and so let's just focus on the scientific stuff because that's a lot easier and so we've grown into this worldview where we think that there is this hard line between these two these two ideas but actually the two are interrelated and interdependent they're not two separately existing entities they're two sides of the same fundamental whole which is this like real but 
unreal existence that like, I, I read this really interesting article recently that was talking about this exact topic and it says that no one argues for example that oxygen is a real thing because we can prove it and, and no one's ever seen oxygen particles but we have mathematical symbols that we that satisfy our, our desire for objectivity but like where is the concept of love because it's equally ephemeral it's also not something that we can grab onto or see mm. But we know it's real. Like no one, no one argues that it's not a real thing. Like love is an illusion, but it's just not something that is um, that is um, that fits in with the scientific definition of what it is to be true or to be real or to really exist. And so I think a lot of a lot of the uh, the problems that we suffer from as a species can be overcome by transcending this this binary worldview. And it, and it really fits into this this integral theory, which I'm a really big fan of. Mm. Um, and and again, forgive me, but this integral theory effectively says that almost everybody, the goal of Western society is to get you to one of two levels of psychological development. One they call the rational and one they call the post-rational. But it can be looked at as the scientific worldview or the emotional worldview. And they they, they are positioned as opposing binaries. But it's transcending them that you move through and realize that, and get to that higher level, you know. So I, I'd like to to be in a world where we say to young children, for example, like, you know, you, you're my little engineer, but also that like, and what that means is that you're curious and that you're creative and, and to help people understand what that means in practice, because it's, we can't define people by what they're going to do in the world, but you can understand people's tendencies right so like right. i've always been very creative but not in the sense of drawing Same. or like sculpting i'm creative in terms of like ideas and, and i like to crush I, I like to bang two ideas together and see what babies they make yeah. you know and, and i like to take philosophical concepts and deconstruct them and and to decide whether or not i support the premises and that sort of stuff but that sort of create that's not seen as creativity in the wider population definitely not in the school systems right it? yeah absolutely yeah. And which so, is a big problem like i was the same i was i was i remember going back to my school and mm -hmm. saying oh i'm I did this at university, and they're like, but you, you weren't creative. You didn't do music. <laughs> yeah. You couldn't draw. Like, yeah. No, exactly. Like, <laughs> there's this other world, and, like, that was then completely misunderstood or at least mm. not acknowledged and, and mm. accepted. I, I don't know. I, I, I hope that that's changing in schools now. Mm. Um, it definitely is with some, some teachers. Yeah. Whether or not it is system-wide, I'm not too sure. It's a travesty if it's not. Yeah, I wonder as well whether there's it's, – it's almost unavoidable. Like, the truth – it's always been true, but we've been able to function as a society without understanding it. Whereas nowadays, let's stick with the engineering example, that so much of an engineer's role has now been automated or been turned into algorithms that the stuff that's left over seems to be the creative value judging side of things. So then it's like, we can't now get away from the fact that this has always been both a creative and a technical pursuit. We just didn't see the creative side because we thought we had to do the technical side. Now we've got computers that do all the modeling for architecture, for example. Mm. So like, you have to learn the technical elements of architecture, but then as soon as you've learned them, you then get someone says, oh, there's a software program that does that. You just need to check it. You yeah. don't need to do it from scratch. You need to check what it does. Yeah. And so then it's like, and now your role is that we want to decide which is the most beautiful looking building. Or like, is this, are the, the people who are going to be living in this building wanting quiet or wanting ambience and buzz? And, and we, that's the bit that we bring to the table, which is that artistic, creative, emotional side, which used to be dissociated from that field. Yeah, and I, I, I wonder whether... At the moment, like with with machines and algorithms and artificial intelligence, like one of the potentially one of the last areas where humans can
can out, outperform uh, the machine mm-hmm. is in creativity and originality in, in, mm. in many ways, right? Mm-hmm. And like, and I think that's one of the reasons that we're Future Builders very much focused on enabling people to be creative with some of these technical disciplines, to be able to think differently, to be able to problem solve and decompose problems, to be able to think about how a machine might do things in order to program the machine as opposed to be programmed by the machine, I guess. Absolutely. And, but, but equally, like if you start to look at what some of these machines are able to do, design organic structures that the human brain can't do, mm-hmm. wouldn't be able to do some of these designs that, that you know, um, for buildings or for like uh, tools or whatever else, mm-hmm. or like things like, um, you know, uh, deep mind um, chess, doing moves that a human would never do that are so creative and so out there that are like completely shifting the paradigm of, of chess and like and I think that's down to like human pattern recognition because essentially we are kind of pattern recognition machines right? yeah absolutely yeah but like I wonder how long we can keep hold of that creative domain as our own mm. um, and how do we how do we kind of move between those worlds? It's kind of an interesting thing. Yeah, yeah. it's it's a hard one. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I <coughs> I think that at least based on my relatively shallow understanding of machine learning, I think that pure originality it sort of goes against the paradigm. What I mean by that is that we take something. I mean, the the Go is a great example, right? Because the I'm sure most of our listeners have remembered that the Go was a game that was supposedly too complex for a machine to beat a human, and and Google did beat a human a month or two ago. I can't remember exactly. And I watched a, a video about it, and there were two moves in the entire game that they made, and what they had commentary while it was happening, and the computer made this move, and the two commentators went, oh, no, he's made a shocker. Yeah, yeah, and it yeah, was yeah. really like, oh, he's made a huge mistake, according to our theory. Yes. But then 5, 10, 15 moves further along, I don't remember exactly, they were like, holy shit, that <laughs> move actually was amazing. <laughs> but it's important for us to distinguish because what didn't happen there is the computer did not go, hey, I want to try this crazy idea because I, no one's ever tried this before. What it did is it, it it did more computation than a human brain can do. Mm. And so it outthought us. It didn't outcreate us. Uh-huh. And yes. that's, an, I think, an important distinction. Whereas, like, uh, uh, you can sort of program it to say, well, try things that don't fit the pattern to see if they fit further down. But you have to specify that to the machine. It won't do that by itself, you know. And Or you take something like like music. There's a lot of interesting work being, being done in artificially created music. But... And, and machines and algorithms can produce lots and lots of different pieces of music, but they can't say if it's beautiful or not, mm. you know, and, and it needs us to say if it's beautiful or not. And, and they, they, you know, there's one that I thought was really interesting. They ran it over, I think it was Bach, and they, they taught this algorithm to write music as Bach. And then they took something like five of the world's leading um, theorists on Bach's music. They played them the songs and they could not tell which ones were Bach and which ones were made by the machines. They were that accurate. Yeah. Yeah. But if, they, if the question is, well, how, how would Bach have made a new style? Right. And then we can't answer that. The machine can't answer that either. It can, it can approximate the way something works to the point where it can do it as well, if not better than humans. But if they, if they create a new um, dissonant chord, for example, only we can decide if that makes it more beautiful or less beautiful. Right. 
all it can do is say, I tried sticking an, uh, what seems to be an ugly chord here. And sometimes ugly chords are amazing. Like yeah. they can be transformative in a song. We just have this one minor diminutive chord that feels really out of place, but it just has this huge emotional impact on you. Yeah. And machines can only ever model that. They can't know it. Yeah, absolutely. And we could definitely go down a big, <laughs> a big like uh, tunnel into like, and exploring what creativity is and what originality is and all these kind of things. But mm -hmm. probably we should pull it back, yeah. just given that we've been talking for <laughs> for a little while already and want to try and keep these fairly short. <laughs> yeah, um, we'll save that for next could, time. We could save that one definitely uh, for next time. Mm -hmm. So what, what are we going to do with this world of education? What are we going to do in order to solve this problem of maybe not at the formal system education mm -hmm. perspective, but like mm -hmm. what can we do? As a company, what are we doing as mm. a company, um, and and how how do we see the world of learning changing over the next few years? Yeah, well, I'd I'd start with highlighting the very frame of the question, which is that the solution is not yet systemic. That we're not at a point where we can say what schools should look like, for example. Right. We're not at a point where we can say what needs to change in a degree to make it perfect, because we still don't know. And so it actually, it's it's behooven on, on organizations like ours and, and the thousands and thousands of other education companies out there to be brave enough to try new things and be willing to fail on the altar of progress. and. Mm and follow our instincts and follow our experiences because a lot of us have been doing this in one-to-one -one and in small group situations. And, and there's a lot of really interesting developments around like helping people collaborate better and communicate better and be better with their critical thinking skills and, and all that sort of stuff. But doing it at scale is the thing that no one has an answer to yet. Absolutely. And uh, I guess, yeah, that's that's one of the reasons that, that, that we exist. I exactly. Guess. We've, we've both been in this world of, of helping people improve, of helping people progress their lives, of learning technical skills, but also developing their own mindset and mm -hmm. thinking skills and those kind of things. For, we've been doing this for, for a number of years, many mm -hmm. years. And actually now we're moving, the reason that, that, that Future Builders exist is to be able to try, and, to try and scale this past the few hundreds of people that we've had a direct impact with mm. and to, to be thousands of people so mm. I'm going to do a shameless plug and, <laughs> and, and, and get towards the end of this uh, this show I think which is like we have a platform we're getting people engaged on it we want people to come and give us their feedback to come and learn something and to come and kind of explore our paradigm of learning mm. at the moment it's set up just for people that are looking well not just for people that are looking to code but mm. as a coding kind of uh, introduction it's mm. kind of understanding how to get from zero to a level one mm -hmm. of coding. And we're gonna broaden this out over the next uh, few months to encompass lots more uh, fields. It's not purely about syntax, it's very much about those thinking skills, those higher oh, level yeah. higher level things that we kind of talk about a huge amount, mm -hmm. um, about problem decomposition, about understanding um, how, to, how to design algorithms and those kinds of things in your mind as well as in, in computers. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, like sign up, go to future-builders.co future uh, to sign up. Can check us out on Instagram, mm -hmm. or Future Builders Dash HQ, HQ now. Just Future Builders HQ, no Future dash. Builders <laughs> HQ, no dash for that one, uh, and uh, and LinkedIn and all the other places mm -hmm. as well. So you should definitely go and check it out. Any last words? Uh, no, I think you did a, did a great plug, and I I don't think there was anything that I would add to that. It really is that simple. For like our our goal is not to teach people to code; it's to help people to update their operating systems. And and part of the struggle for us as an organization is that very few people are bought into the idea that they're running on an outdated operating system because 
everybody's living a life where whatever operating system they've got, it's good enough for the life they're living, because if it wasn't, then they'd change it. But that's not actually true. There's a lot of suffering, a lot of confusion, a lot of hopelessness and isolation in the world. And I think that comes from the fact that we're, we, we see reality in a way that no longer applies. Um, and the, in the context of future builders, we know that if we said to people, help us update your operating system, they'll say, no, thank you, I don't need it. But what we say is actually the best way to learn a specific useful skill, which is coding, we will show you that updating your operating system is the most efficient way to get that. And then hopefully what you'll then realize is that things like data analysis or digital marketing or product design are also much easier once you update this operating system. And the same thing holds for everything else. It makes you a better manager. It makes you a better friend. It makes you a better partner. It just... Everything in reality makes a lot more sense when your view of it fits what it really is. You know, yeah, 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 it's yeah. like everyone. Most people are walking around. I mean, again, forgive me the, the philosophical mention, but it's like uh, Plato's allegory of the caves. Right, 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 right. It's like if you've only ever been looking at the the shadow projections on the wall of a cave, then so, for someone to tell you that there's this rich and colourful world out there, it's like. Who cares? So what? What does that change? I'm, my reality is seeing these things on a wall, which you call shadows. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, to, to finish off with a little plug, what I want is for people to come to Future Builders, have a little taste of this new paradigm of seeing the world, and hopefully the rest will take care of itself. No one wants to be stuck with Windows 95. Right? <laughs> we need to be updating people's operating systems. Yeah, right? that's it. And, and most people are running on Windows 95 and don't realize that okay. there are these incredible operating systems out there there that just make the whole experience much more enjoyable perfect let's uh, let's let's stop it there and we're going to be back next week we're going to try and do these uh, every week um, and we might try and get some guests at some point so look out for some really super interesting guests uh, to kind of talk about things and it's not just jordan and i waffling on for an hour each day thanks so much Brilliant. see you next time thanks, thanks.